Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 2 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes, and follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk to Tyler about Google Earth Engine. So let's do the news then on the 19th of May, 2021. I think my news is tinged with Earth Engine (laughs) (laughs) uh, in itself. But before I dive into that, I wanted to talk about two funding rounds that I saw, one from Alba and the other one from Albedo. I'm going to get confused with both of these companies because they're so similar in in name. But Alba, their um, seed round has raised $3.4 million, but their plan is to image the earth every 15 minutes really great news alba orbital are a scottish company yeah we had them on rasa's revealed actually talking about some of their tech yeah it's just really cool that they've managed to secure that funding (laughs) in some ways it's bonkers that they're they're aiming for this but it's just brilliant that small companies are are seeing these gaps in the market and are able to convince people to raise the money and then they're going for it so best of luck i say where does it stop though eh? yes there is then the next issue of um you know how many satellites do we need in order to do all this and where are they going to be and is that a problem but also is is it client driven or is it technology driven is it need driven or is it oh we can because they're light and cheap to launch so we'll worry about the market later i'm being slightly disingenuous i think but these companies are raising phenomenal amounts of money when albedo raises 10 million in a seed round Ten million dollars. <laughs> it's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, so what does Albedo do? I didn't see that one. Okay, they want to provide ten centimeter imagery and two meter thermal imagery. What? Wow. Okay, ten centimeter and two meter thermal. I said on Twitter the other day, is there a page that kind of compresses all of these different startups doing all these different things, so I can somehow see? Oh, that one does that. That one's going for the more temporal side of things, but that one's going for the higher resolution. We need a table, definitely, of what each company's doing, where they're based, how much they've raised, why they're different. There just seems to be no slowing to the pace. So Satellite View have raised £3.6 million this time <laughs> uh, to launch in 2022 another constellation but this time looking at thermal. And they've, they've basically the news article that we'll link to um, shows that they've done some uh, tests using an aerial platform. Like you say, it's an amazing time to have all of the funding going on and all of the ideas that are coming to fruition. Right. So I wanted to also talk about or mention Digital Earth Africa, who've got a great training data set and um, a new platform. And it's built on a cesium sort of front end and Ooh, you can okay. pull in the um, information related to it. So it's maps.digitalearth.africa. So it's on the cesium front end. I don't know how you feel about cesium. It, it's kind of nice. In some ways, it's sort of another portal, another web map front end. But there's not too many built on cesium in its defense. So I was playing on this earlier and you can add satellite images. So daily surface reflectance from Sentinel-2, Landsat series. You can get annual or you can get some radar that scatter from Pulsar or, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, you can load the data in and then you add it to the map and then you get to choose the time frame, and then it streams in these granules, is that the right phrase, that you can then zoom in on and, and inspect the data. So it's quite it's quite nice really as a, as a front end. Yeah, this is labeled as a prototype, but Digital Earth Africa, well worth checking out and are doing amazing things with the free and open satellite data. That's very cool. Very cool. So I wanted to just quickly highlight something called EO Clinic, which is a European Space Agency thing. 
and in part I'm highlighting this because I actually was part of a, a consortium that bid for it and we obviously didn't get it um, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a, a team consisting of EGOS, uh, GAF and Planetech Italia have won the EO Clinic contract and basically the idea behind this is to have somewhere that organizations generally large organizations can approach the European Space Agency and say we've got this idea or we've got this problem we just need to know very quickly is this something that could even be looked at using satellite imagery or geospatial data is it something that is possible mm. again so the the link that we'll put in the show notes has some of the projects that they've been doing so they've been looking at characterizing forest ecosystems and they've been looking at drought resilience as well as well as things like natural wealth and sovereign risk. So different types of things. Some are very spatial, some are modeling, and some are sort of pulling out statistics from the data and then just plotting those in a way that a statistician in a given country or an organization would understand it. I really like this idea of having somewhere where people can just quickly check whether or not something is viable as an idea rather than having to go through big procurement types of things. I was looking at their websites. So there's a EO requester questionnaire that you fill in about your project. That would be good, wouldn't it? If someone, you know, phoned you up, hello, EO clinic. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this idea to put NDUVR on the portal. Let me just stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. That's interesting. That's actually quite a, a novel idea. Right, Earth Engine. I'm going to talk about Earth Engine, of course, and obviously it sort of preludes to our topic and discussion with Tyler. A bit of a lag from last time, should have mentioned it last time. Best available pixel, code in the show links. Amazing compute goes behind this. The way that Earth Engine allows you to build and disseminate your work and then allow everybody to use that algorithm and process blows my mind continuously when this came out a huge sort of chatter on twitter and but there was this question about is this just blowing apart the google servers because everyone's doing the best pixel for you know all their study areas and you can you can download the imagery and do date ranges and cloud oh my god i mean it's it's just you know if you went back a few years you you'd have said this is where we want to be with remote sensing my other Earth Engine news is spatialforts.com is a brilliant resource for training. We don't shout about this enough. Oh man, it just goes along with what, what I've seen throughout 2021. This deluge of not of data, but of learning material. And what we've got here is the full course material for an end-to-end Google Earth Engine. You want to learn about Earth Engine? I think this is the place to go. Really amazing. The final thing that I wanted to highlight is not Earth observation specifically, but it's important to us anyway. And it's a document that's been put out by the UK Statistics Authority. And it's called Ethical Considerations in the Use of Geospatial Data for Research and Statistics. Even if you don't read through the entire web page and everything that goes with it, there's something called the Ethics Checklist. Uh, which you can link through to, which is nice, actually, to just have a look at. Uh, you can just go through the 16 point in their ethics checklist. I, I think this is a really good idea, actually. The second to last point, do the choice of ranges, colours and symbolization you've chosen reflect the real relationship rather than a particular story you've chosen to tell? There's a book, isn't there, called How to Lie with Maps. Yes. Did you do that in your undergrad? I did. I did Yay. in my... in, in um. No, my master's degree. I've got the book somewhere. Yeah, I used to have it as well. Reminiscing hour. <laughs> yeah, but it's the kind of book your dad picks up and goes, oh, <laughs> look at this, and then gets about four pages in and goes, actually, it's a lot drier than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> I always found that visualization thing fascinating. 
And in some ways, I found it a little bit intimidating. I think that's a good reminder to me to say, have I chosen to reflect the real relationship? It is a good geo point. Ethics in, in the geospatial world and satellite imagery as well, it needs to be talked a lot more. There's a lot of things coming down the line, whether it be the deep fakery of imagery or privacy. We need to start having the conversation now. And that's it for the news. This is an exciting episode for us as we get to talk to Tyler Erickson, who is a developer advocate for Google Earth Engine. Tyler, it's great to have you on the show. Um, first up, could you quickly introduce yourself and maybe explain how you got to be working at Google Earth Engine and also help us and our listeners understand what a developer advocate does day to day? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm Tyler and I work at Google on the Earth Engine project as a developer advocate. I've been there since about 2012. I joined from coming from academia, specifically to work on Earth Engine because it seemed like a pretty interesting technology back in, at that time, 2011, 2012, and I still think that's true. My role is, as you said, the developer advocate, and that has uh, a few different things. It, it's both uh, outreach of basically describing what certain technologies can do. So that involves recording trainings, going to conferences, teaching workshops, basically teaching in, in many different forms. And then also doing the opposite, which is like gathering information from developers, users of the products and figuring out how that can come back and inform the direction of the product in the future. So a lot of it is uh, learning about everybody's projects to the level of detail that you can find out if they're hitting any barriers and trying to work on addressing those barriers. And the barriers come in all different shapes and forms. So um, it's, it's pretty interesting role and it is quite varied in what you get to do from day to day. That sounds really cool. The other thing that I was going to ask about is that in many ways, Earth Engine has sort of changed the way that Earth Observation is implemented, particularly for, I guess, the sort of more junior cohorts who are coming out of academia now. I get the impression that Earth Engine is used a lot in, in terms of teaching and things. Do you find that these sort of junior developers and EO specialists are trying to come and build on the core uh, functionality of Earth Engine and try and extend its functionality? Or would you say that the system is pretty much developed now and it's all about sort of applications? I'd say that it's definitely still in development, still expanding. Uh, we definitely haven't run out of things to do uh, within Google by a long shot. But also we built it in such a way that it has... API surfaces that allow uh, developers that are skilled to build on top of it. And we've been seeing a lot more of that happen over the last couple of years uh, with Earth Engine. So yeah, we're, we're definitely not running out of things to do. I also have noticed a lot of the users uh, that really adopt Earth Engine kind of fall into two categories. They're either early in their research career, basically adopting you know whatever they find to be the best technology because uh, you're just starting off. And then also those that tend to be getting towards the end of their career and they want to have a lasting legacy. So, you know, it basically, they just, they just want to get something done that's going to outlast them. Uh, and those also seem to have a lot of interest in Earth Engine. And it's, it's fun to work with both of them. One of the neat things about Earth Engine is that if you kind of understand its capabilities, there's an amazing amount of stuff that you can do with it just some examples of this. I mean, we have developers that are 
start using it while they're high school students and they end up, you know, teaching at the United Nations or something like that, and being able to do global scale analysis. And that's something that would have been really hard to do uh, yeah. before. But it's, <laughs> you know, we, if, you, if you have the right mindset and you learn about the right features of it, it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's really cool as well that you actually have an overview of, of who is using it and the types of sort of age groups and things like that. It's really nice that not only is it about the technology, but it's about understanding the users of that technology as well. How did Earth Engine come into existence? What was the tipping point? How did it start? Uh, how it started uh, was there's a group that I'm within, uh, within a group called or Geo for Good, Earth Outreach. And this has existed uh, quite a long time, longer than Earth Engine. And the mission was quite still the same as, as it was uh, a decade ago, is to try to address some of the large uh, environmental and social issues that are going around the world. So we go and do trainings. Uh, I wasn't with the team at the time. I joined in 2012. But there was a training that went on in South America in the Brazilian Amazon where we were showing off uh, Google Earth and how the time feature of Google Earth could allow you to look back and see how the rainforest was changing. And there were just some people that were there at the conference in the audience saying, can you just give us access to all of this imagery that they could see in Google Earth, but they couldn't actually you know, analyze it. It's a visualization tool. And that coincided with right around the time that USGS uh, decided to make the Landsat Archive free and open around 2008, 2009. Right. So there was a large amount of imagery suddenly available uh, that was publicly accessible, but really still hard to access because just of the sheer volume of it. Wow. So basically the, the kickoff point was the free and open access to the Landsat Archive and the policy change for USGS. Yes, I would say very much so. I mean, that, that was a tipping point, I think, for a lot of changes uh, in the remote sensing. <laughs> when Google Earth came along, it gave me the opportunity to communicate with my family <laughs> and tell them what I did for a living. And um, quite a few people get obsessed with the killer app and nothing seems to ever rival the step change that happened with Google Earth. And when I first came across Earth Engine, it was at a a QJS conference actually and a, a guy an academic guy said to me oh you need to check out Google Earth Engine and I said no no you mean you mean Google Earth and he said no uh, you know you want to check out Earth Engine and I was absolutely blown away by it and at that point I think it was sort of 2016 so sort of what eight years after its conception and I, I'd never seen anything like it the most common question I don't know if you're how happy you are going to be about answering this question but the, the most common question is the fear that it's going to be switched off yeah that that does uh, get raised quite often I would just say that earth engine has been an incredibly successful product and it's yeah. been growing steadily over the decade we've had a relatively small team uh, that has grown slowly and a relatively, by Google standards, small community of users relative to the other big Google products. Uh, but it has had a really outsized kind of influence on just, you know, stories of like what has been done with this tool in the world, like what type of environmental monitoring it has enabled, uh, whether it's deforestation, like yep. change. Um, so it's... It, I mean, I, I, I can see that as a valid concern. I actually, it's something that I thought about when I was joining Google, but uh, 
I was very happy with my choice. It has largely been a product that people just, you know, sign up for and use it for free. And that does make people uncomfortable. We do actually do have some commercial users, but it's, it's a very small uh, percentage of the total number of retention users. But our goal is to have impact on environmental and social issues throughout the world. And we realize that some of the organizations that can help us have the most impact need a commercial arrangement in order to invest the time and learn uh, the technology, you know, training up their staff on it. Uh, so we do have some commercial users as well. My second awkward question would be how many commercial users, you know, approximately do you have, but you sort of answered that. So, you know, it's fair enough. There are always difficult questions to ask, but every time you, you say something about Earth Engine, potentially that's always the first kickback question with the nervousness about it. But JavaScript and Python, did Earth Engine originally plan to be a dual language platform or was it just JavaScript and then Python came along? So since the beginning um, of developer access to Earth Engine, there have been two APIs, both the JavaScript and the Python API. Yeah. Uh, but what is different is that we've had a lot of investment in creating a developer environment that uh, could be sandboxed, uh, hosted as a service, the Earth Engine code editor, yep. that uses the JavaScript API. So that's what the greatest number of developers use and also use for teaching because it's you know no setup for the most part, you just go in and it's easy. The functionality is pretty much equivalent because Earth Engine on the back end doesn't know anything about Python or JavaScript. There's just some client libraries that sit on top that translate from those languages into Earth Engine's description of the task graph that we want to use to operate on these data sets. Pretty much, as I said, anything that you want to do in JavaScript, you can do it in Python. And then, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there, there are uh, developers that work with Earth Engine that have built stuff on top of it. GE Map is a good example of that, yeah. of yeah. making uh, the Python API more useful in a uh, Jupyter-type environment. I'm actually a Python programmer by my background. And one of the first things that I did when I joined the Earth Engine team was package up the Python API and put it on PyPy. Uh, later put Conda package together, but the, yeah, the core has always been uh, teaching with JavaScript and then the advanced users that are familiar with Python can leverage that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I think, have actually come into programming through the JavaScript API. You were saying that Python and JavaScript are sort of layers on top of Earth Engine. So what, what's the core of Earth Engine written in? It's primarily Java. Java, okay. And there basically is a serialized version of the commands that get sent from the client libraries back to the Java servers. You can, there's actually functions in the client library that allow you to serialize and print out the, the actual commands that are being sent to the backend servers, if you're so interested. Yeah, well, <laughs> it just uh, suddenly got me, got me thinking about stuff. You know, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was the, the, the enabling of scientific research and sharing of that code through, you know, academic papers and, and research and just sharing the link to an Earth Engine project, for want of a better term, or even better, the Earth Engine apps. It's just, it's really phenomenal, the, these applications. For people who aren't familiar, is, is, that, is that hard to build if you've, if you've written an algorithm or you're, you're working with the data um, and you want to share, share the, you know, the output? How much work is that for, for a researcher to do? to disseminate their, their work? So the, the basic step of going from 
the user interface that you see in the code editor to creating an app is really quite simple. <laughs> it's clicking a button and filling out like one dialogue of, of accounts you want to associate with in order to, for that to happen. And Earth Engine apps support almost everything that the code editor does with the exception right now of exporting data um, because you need an account basically to export it to. But it's a, it's a fairly simple thing to get a basic app. But if you want to make a really useful app in terms of wiring up widgets with behaviors and things like that, that, that can involve some, some programming knowledge. Um, I just actually finished up this week uh, with Justin Broughton uh, recording a video on this exact topic of producing Earth Engine apps for research papers. And we walk through all the steps, how to organize your code, what's involved with doing it. It's like an hour long tutorial. I came from academia and it always bothered me that the incentives and funding structure in academia uh, encourage you to do something for on a one, three year time scale. And after that, it's not quite clear whether it will continue and you're not really incentivized to necessarily share it with others so they can build on top of it, even though that's how, you know, it's how academia is supposed to work. You're supposed to stand on the shoulders of giants. The incentive structure doesn't always make that the case. So yeah. we are trying to make it easier. Did the sort of additional work that's been done on Earth Engine, is that, is that, was that a surprise to, to Google? The Google Earth Engine plugin for QJS, the GE map, as, as you mentioned, the, the sort of the massive you know, support and community that comes around or, or was that just sort of all expected that people would spin out things like this from Earth Engine? It's definitely what we have been hoping for. Uh, we run uh, our own conferences. Uh, there used to be an Earth Engine User Summit. Uh, later, uh, it got folded in with the Geo for Good User Summit because so many of the Geo for Good attendees uh, wanted to learn about Earth Engine. Um, and some of those projects actually came out of sessions and meetings that happened at those conferences. The QGIS is a good example of that. That was a, a small project that started up during one of our uh, week-long um, summit meetings. And over the course of the next year, uh, it turned into an actual application for QGIS. So we have invested heavily of trying to bring together like-minded users to these, uh, both to the summits that we hold and to other conferences like AGU, EGU, Living Planet Symposium, and uh, get people to, to work together, share their work, uh, hoping that they would build on top of Earth Engine. So we definitely have been surprised of some of the things that have appeared, but we weren't surprised that something appeared because that's actually what we've been trying to facilitate for many, many years. <laughs> and how has the 2020 virtual conferences been? I mean, Earth Engine sort of lends itself almost to that kind of conference, I guess. Uh, in some ways. I mean, we did Geo for Good last year as a virtual yeah. conference. Uh, the benefit is that we, we got more attendees than we ever could have with a physical conference. Um, so that part was good. I mean, access to certain people that uh, didn't have access before. But what we've really lost out on, and, and this doesn't just go for the conference we're hosting, but, but the other like AGU, EGU scientific yeah. conferences I mentioned, is that a lot of the value of those meetings is just getting together in a low pressure environment and spending hours to a couple of days of repeated conversations to establish connections. And that has been really hard to replicate moving to a digital conference. 
I haven't seen anybody like crack that successfully of like make a virtual conference feel like the, you know, the meetups at the lunch time or the coffee time or the after presentation time at these uh, physical conferences. With the virtual conferences, the trick I always think that's been slightly missed is that you have the potential of everyone interacting with, with the thing that you're talking about during that talk. There are positives, I think, from the, the virtual world. I, I would say, to be honest, I would usually treat the physical meetings in the way that you just described the vertical one. I'd sit in the audience with my laptop open, often with Earth Engine, and try to replicate parts of what a presenter is. Uh, I do this especially when I'm invited to go and talk at a conference and I want to make it relevant to the attendees. It's great to just spend 15 minutes with a person, learn about their problem, and give them like some working code at the end of that time. Well, I was just going to sort of change tack a little bit. If one of our listeners maybe wanted to potentially get into your group at some point, like what sort of skills, I'm not saying that there's there's an opening available or anything, but what sort of skills is it that an Earth Engine developer sort of should have? Uh, it is varied. Part of it is a good domain knowledge of just like what is what is needed in Earth science. So being able to to understand... Uh, the process and workflows uh, people go through when they're in academia, or it doesn't have to be academic research groups, but research groups, whether than government and nonprofit or in academia, mm -hmm. and the barriers that are there. Um, so you can kind of sympathize with both what they're going through and suggest workarounds uh, to the barriers. It helps to have a strong programming background. I am a geographer and civil environmental engineer by training. So I don't have a, a formal computer science background, but it's always been a, you know, a tool I've used pretty much my whole life, just was never uh, the focus of my studies. So some programming knowledge is definitely needed. So um, those are some of the main ones. I mean, just as a general remote sensing practitioner, man, fuck up on your statistics. I think that is usually my <laughs> advice. Uh, that's not... <laughs> <laughs> That's really what you want to do. You're going to be like confronted with so much data, so much noisy data, uh, knowing how to sort through that, uh, tell if something is working or not in the presence of that noise. Um, a strong statistical background is really helpful. When I first started using Earth Engine, there was a, there was a bit of a kickback about atmospherically corrected Sentinel-2 data, I think, from memory. If you've got to reprocess every single scene all around the world, that's quite a lot of compute, isn't it? It is, but... Google is pretty good at quite a lot of compute. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, a good, it's a good challenge for us. Um, but yes, uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. That, I mean, there's been a push to analysis-ready data. Uh, and I always think of that somewhat more as a marketing term because the groups like uh, USGS and NASA, they have been producing different level products, level two, level three, level four, for so many years, you know, decades. And in my mind, those are analysis-ready products, depending on what type of analysis you want. And sometimes you want the low level, and sometimes you want to process to a higher level. That hasn't changed, but now there is like a, a, a nice term, ARD, to, to refer to this. Um, what I really want to ask you is, am I correct in thinking if you wanted to do deep learning, if you wanted to use TensorFlow, you have to take out the data from Earth Engine and then put it into a Google server or cloud compute platform and then bring it back into Earth Engine. Is that the workflow? Uh, it's pretty close to what you described. Um, so there is a process of extracting data that you would use for training a deep learning model. 
that you would export out of Earth Engine uh, in a variety of formats. One of them is TF records or TensorFlow. Yeah, records. yeah, you, yeah. You'd put it in a, a place like cloud storage. Um, so it could go to TensorFlow, but you could do the same if you're using another framework other than that. Um, at that point, you're going to take your training data and build and train a model that's all done outside of Earth Engine. Uh, but once you have a trained model, you then and are, and are hosting it in, in Google's uh, TensorFlow uh, hosting platform, you then can refer to it from within Earth Engine. And so that new data that needs to be passed through the model for doing the inference step uh, can be done from within Earth Engine. Is there a plan to integrate that into Earth Engine or have I totally misunderstood why that would be a bad idea? Um, I think I'll go with the latter. Uh, <laughs> TensorFlow and, and any other uh, deep learning network, they are moving very fast. And, and always the best way to train and tune models is going to be found in the, the tools that are written specifically for that. There is, though, an opportunity for Earth Engine for us to train some very useful remote sensing models and make those available. But in order to do the training, I don't foresee that happening directly from within Earth Engine because it's in some ways it is a different set of expertise. Are there any sort of future plans for Earth Engine that you can tell us about now? Uh, in general, things definitely roll out as they roll out. We always have a lot of more ideas and requests from our community than we can work on at any time. But you, I guess, can continue to look forward to new data sets uh, being added there, new algorithms being added to our stack of, I think we're now, I think we're over 1,500 uh, methods in Earth Engine that you can chain together in over 600 data sets. Wow. Uh, so that will keep continuing on. That's been absolutely brilliant, Tyler. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting to talk to you about Earth Engine and all the things happening there. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tyler. So we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSumeFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Press record. Sing along, listeners. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.